0: Welcome to Poet in Bangkok.
1: We're still here. I'm Donald Quist. And I'm Colin Chaney. Every episode, we hear the stories of illustrators, dancers, musicians, drag queens, and underground librarians.
0: And Colin and I will try to piece together a larger story about making art and expressing yourself during this era of military rule and Thailand. On today's podcast, you'll hear an interview with acclaimed comics artist David Lloyd, co-creator and illustrator of V for Vendetta. This is a bit of a departure for us. Um, We've only interviewed Thai artists on the podcast and David is very much British. But given his body of work and the legacy of V for Vendetta, we had to jump at the chance to sit down with him while he was visiting Thailand. In our interview, David discusses his working class upbringing and how American culture fed his development as an artist. He gives insight into some of his earlier collaborations with Alan Moore and other writers. David also shares his impressions of Bangkok and provides his perspective on the use of his V for Vendetta Guy Fox mask by Thai protesters.
1: Usually at this point in the episode, we uh, take a moment to kind of step back and take a look at sort of the larger picture of uh, Thai art and uh, the... the Thai art within the context of censorship uh, in, and self-censorship uh, under the, the current state of affairs right, uh, in Thailand. Back. But given the fact that uh, David is British, we're going to take a slightly different approach and just kind of give some reflections on uh, what he got us thinking about a little bit in the interview. And you're going to hear that for yourself. But we're just going to flag some things here to to, um, to prime the pump, I guess, a little bit. Um, of just some things that he got us thinking about that are relevant to some of the larger issues that we, that we are, uh, we have been talking to other Thai artists about. One of the things that struck, struck me in the conversation with David Lloyd was uh, his thoughts on self-censorship. Uh, Well, he very much regards himself as an activist and um, and acknowledged that when he was creating his early comics and particularly creating V for Vendetta, he really thought he could be as, uh, in his words, radical and and, uh, countercultural as he really wanted to be. Right. But he also said that basically said that self-censoring uh, it's sort of a natural and even a an, uh, desirable mm-hmm. aspect of being an artist if you are trying to reach a wide audience. And he really emphasized that at a number of points in his conversation. You know, he emphasized that you can, as he said, you can still tell a powerful story uh, without offending anybody. And in his mind that, you know, V for Vendetta doesn't really offend um, anybody, which was an interesting interesting thought. And he, he really emphasized this, this point about like, there's not for him a need to be provocative for its own sake, right? right? That that if you that if you really have a point that you want to get across and being provocative is the only way to get that point across, then that's then that's fine. But I don't know, I got it just got me thinking about perhaps it got it guess it got me reflecting on the audience for the different artists that we've been talking to, the different Thai artists here, right? Uh right. who who is the audience for, uh, for Kathy McLeod's comics, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, who is the audience for Degaruda's music? <laughs> they have a new record out, by the way. Yeah, if you haven't yeah. been following it, you should check it out and download it. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, you should buy it, not just download <laughs> yeah, it. You should yeah. buy it. You, who are the people that are going to Notes parties? Who's right. going out to the drag shows? Who's the audience? And, and are all of those artists trying to, in David Lloyd's words, uh, reach as wide an audience as possible? Or do they have a particular audience in mind. Right. Um, I don't know. That just, that just really struck me. And I think, I mean, he said that he never experienced any sort of actual censorship. He never experienced, he, he said that, um, you know, even within Thatcher's uh, England, he, de- yeah. he never, he never felt that he couldn't draw something or couldn't write something. So in that way, obviously very, very different <laughs> from yeah. the Thai context, but that, that those thoughts on self censorship really struck me.
0: So, yeah, I found that fascinating. Um, Lloyd is in a position where he has more freedom to explore political topics and issues um, while artists like Che and they're under this severe oppression and they choose to actively fight that oppression. And um,
1: and and see it as their obligation as artists as obligation. to do to do so. Yeah. Yeah. So I
0: found that kind of fascinating. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think I think but I think it is interesting just thinking about context, right? I think that a lot of David Lloyd's work is very, is very political, yeah. right? It's, I mean, we talked it. We talk about the the horrorist yeah. and
0: the farmer and the soldier. The farmer
1: and the soldier yeah. story about about Cambodia. So I think what's interesting is I think maybe in a context where you have a, where you have a perceived freedom to say whatever you want, yeah. certain things like that, those stories he doesn't necessarily regard them as being political in right. nature. He just, as he said, he just really likes good stories <laughs> yeah. and he, you know, and they just are good stories to him. Uh, where perhaps for an artist who's operating under uh, a regime that actually has particular rules on what yeah, you can right. and cannot say, creating that story would be um, an act of, <laughs> would, would be an act of <laughs> yeah. political speech. Yeah. Right. And would be, would be an act of resistance.
0: Yeah. It's kind of fascinating though, like uh, under, under a regime, Everything becomes political, having a library mm-hmm. that you invite your friends to becomes political, right dancing becomes political right. oh. yeah,
1: yeah, where it got me thinking about in the u s yeah sort of how how we think i mean i remember I remember in graduate school, there was a lot of conversation about sort of political poetry mm-hmm. you know and how like and how basically how it sucked, you know, sort of like <laughs> how you know if, if you were writing a political poem. Yeah that was didactic, Mm. uh, or even if it wasn't even trying to be didactic, it was inherently didactic and sort of was, was regarded as being very suspect. Mm. Um, and obviously that's a problematic, that's a problem, very problematic view. But I think the idea being that like, that there's a real line between sort of making a statement, a political statement for a particular party or, or stance and just creating Creating art. I don't know. It just got me thinking a lot about that. Maybe the last thing we should just say and we'll um, of course you We'll just let the man himself um, Talk about it when we get to the interview um, but we, we talked to him um, about the Legacy of the Guy Fox mask yeah. uh, that he conceived for the V for Vendetta comic book um, when it was being published in warrior the UK, yeah. um, and then uh, became uh, popularized and then merchandized uh, in the uh, V for Vendetta film, um, and then became used uh, for a variety of protests um, at the the Church of Scientology, Occupy Anonymous, and also here in Thailand. Uh, though the use here, and maybe we won't spoil it. Maybe we'll just leave that uh, yeah. for you to uh, to to if you if you don't know about uh, the use of the Guy Fawkes mask uh, in. Thai social and political movements—it's fascinating. It's very um, interesting, yeah. and it was—it was interesting to get his take on that. But but he—I sort of loved how how much he embraced that legacy of it, and he really felt that the mask, in most of the in most of the ways that it's used, um, I think he chooses very much to to focus on those. <laughs> yeah, in most of the ways that it's used, it is very much used in the spirit of the themes buried in the film and what and what the I'm sorry yeah buried in the film and, he, and he'll he refer to the film as much as to the comic book yeah, yeah. he feels very much ownership over that as well which he shouldn't he yeah. wrote the damn thing <laughs> <Yeah>. um, or <laughs> created the damn thing um, so it's just very interesting how, how much he really uh, was and he said he's proud of it he's yeah. proud of that
0: yeah well he said it belongs to the world and I guess from his perspective it belongs to the people of Thailand as well they yeah. have the right to use it for whatever act of expression that they s- see fit,
1: right? Even if Colin and Donald find Don't that understand. find that <laughs> ironic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, well, maybe that's we'll just we'll just end there. But we were interviewing him here in Thailand, and there's lots of resonances uh, yeah. between his storytelling and what's going on here yeah. that will be obvious. <laughs> um, so.
0: Yeah. So a lot has happened since <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, a lot has happened since we we last spoke to you dear listeners. And I know we've talked a lot on this podcast about Mars. It's sort of become this digression from our plan, you know, we were here to explore, you know, Thailand and living in Bangkok and what that's like, but it's Mars, man. It's <laughs> there's there's a lot going on. There's with a lot going on and and,
1: and, and yeah, and there yeah, and there's so much going on. It yeah. would it would I think it would have been stranger, Donald, if we yeah. had just if we had just ignored the right. fact that there were there were weird objects coming toward the planet. I think that would have been that would have yeah. been peculiar.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and maybe more that would have been more surreal perhaps yeah. than well than the real that we actually Vote, but I think we're in future episodes. I think we're well. I mean, we obviously we're here. The the whales broke up in the atmosphere, as we all fucking know, uh, and the world didn't end. Uh, So maybe we we don't have to talk about it quite as much.
0: But it it just seems it's sort of weird, you know. Like uh, one night, I'm the whales are coming through. I am holding my wife. We're crying together. And then the next day, we're shopping for avocados. (laughs) Um, It's just strange. Wait, how did
1: those avocados get in? They shut down all the. Oh
0: yeah. Well, they must have been old avocados. They must have been (laughs) old avocados. Yeah, because
1: they shut down the air travel. But yeah. yeah.
0: But it's it's (laughs) it's just crazy. The the it's unreal how quickly we've gone back to normal. and a lot of people, especially here in Bangkok, just don't seem to have been affected yeah. by. Well, I think that's. I think that's.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a little bit of the particularly Thai training in coups, ah, right? I mean, you sort of you sort you sort think about going. how, like, you think about how when when I was trying to press note on mm. some of the, you know, I was, I was really trying to get, I was getting very Colin earnest on him. <laughs> You know, and just being like, isn't it weird? You know, how is it that you, cr- you know, create art? Yeah. You know, and he was just sort of like, dude, there's just so many coups. <laughs> you just have to have a party. Yeah. <laughs> just don't... yeah. And there party were some, through. there were parties. There were parties, but yeah. as you say, everybody just kind of got Yeah. Back. We need
0: to make sure it's for, no, party through. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so like I'm on Facebook. I see Node is traveling. Um, he's having a good time. Kyo is in Japan. Pan Pan is still performing at Stranger Bar every night. Dino released the album mm-hmm. with De Garuda. Kathy's still drawing. It's Nothing has happened. Like everything is going as it always has. Mm-hmm. And I've got this anxiety built up from this huge event. Um, and it has nowhere to go. That's interesting. Yeah. So sort of, sort of
1: like a latent. Yeah. yeah. It's stuck.
0: Yeah. And I, I think, am I sick? Like, did I want to die? Like,. <laughs> But it was very anticlimactic. It just... Nothing. Yeah. It nothing.
1: Yeah. I mean, do you feel any sort of sense of, like, renewed purpose? Or you just feel like you got... I mean, I don't know. Like, yeah, I yeah. feel... I mean, I don't... I'm trying, I, mean, I guess I'm asking you as much as I'm asking myself yeah. about that. If you sort of live through something like that. Yeah. Is there... I don't know. I'm gonna have to think
0: about like, that. Like, are we here for a reason? Yeah. I, I don't know. I have yeah, this, but we're still
1: you know. here, and, and Donald Trump is still here. So right. we can't all be here for the same reason. <laughs> like, I survived... <laughs> And Donald Trump. Yeah, we all saw. <laughs> so I think the answer to that is not logically. If I you see. Just
0: follow that. Yeah, we'll have to ask this I'm sure. I'm sure true. many
1: people do, and I'm actually. i mean, people are talking about that online, mm-hmm. right? Like you know, the salvation and how yeah. the number of people that were so disappointed that the, they were not raptured. You know, you just yeah. gotta like. Remember a couple years ago, there was that thing where they they thought a bunch of people thought that the rapture was imminent, and so they.
0: They went to Oakland, California. That was the guy who led it. Is that the. Maybe that. I'm just.
1: The thing, but I mean, I can't remember many details, but the detail that I can remember is that a bunch of people thought that they were going to get raptured. So. There were some businesses that got set up to take care of their pets. Oh yeah, you remember yeah, that? Yeah, and they, so there were businesses to take care of the pets of the ra- of the people that had been raptured because they were going to get raptured up to heaven. And they right. were not going to be around anymore. So what I just found fascinating about that though was like, okay, so they're entrusting people who are not being raptured <laughs> with the care of their pets. So like these are the damned, right? Yeah. I mean, I need to go back to Revelation and, yeah. and give it a read over, but I think like. If you don't get raptured, like you're not that great a dude. So like you're like I love my pets. So I I love them. I love them enough to like keep them. But I'm gonna I'm gonna let like a like a potential satanist. Yeah, that's right. Care for a wicked that was just. But I love like that. They then had to go pick them up. They had (laughs) to like. Sorry, never never mind. It'll take my puppy. puppy That that was a genius. But that happened again. The same. thing. You know. Anyway. Genius. Anyway. Well, I mean, I guess I just I guess I'll just say without going into this too much that. I find it unbelievable mm. that the Earth didn't get fucking wasted. It is. It's just un- it's unbelievable. Like, objects of that size, mm. and there, were, there were nine of them, right? Like, yeah. they were going at that utterly unholy and, like, technologically impossible speed,
2: mm.
1: hell-bent to destroy the Earth's atmosphere and biosphere. They should have totally wiped it out. Hmm. But they did. They didn't. They just broke. They broke up, and debris fell. So, the efficiency of the <laughs> world- <laughs> the efficiency of the world governments in sealing off all of those areas, yeah. right? Like where the debris fell, is also pretty astonishing. Yeah. I mean, if only huh. if only our governments could respond to like regular old Earth crises, yeah. <laughs> Like like floods and yeah. famine and poverty and institutional racism, really like with that like speed and verve. Mm things would be rad. Yeah. They would be they would be awesome here on earth. But like I hate the I hate the feeling that I'm all like conspiracy ist about like the locking down of the recovered artifacts yeah. and like I don't I don't I don't know buy the reports coming out of China and Brazil who are the only countries that have actually said anything about the artifacts so far like that all that they they're just run of the mill meteorites like made of like <laughs> iron nickel i mean the chinese at least bothered to say that the rocks were, were uh i haven't I, I wrote it down somewhere oh uh shargati nakla and shasini i don't actually hmm. even know but yeah. i just like that they actually in, in the report i'm looking at they went to figure they, it out. they yeah. actually like that is what mars rocks are made of like, okay that, that's like oh. that we know Whoa. that that's where meteorites. So, like, they, you know, they, so like, it matches earlier They said that yeah. it matches earlier samples of, of meteorites thought to have originated from Mars. Like the one that was found in Antarctica years ago. Remember yeah. that? That, yeah. like, that they thought might, like, have evidence of, of Martian life. Um, but I don't know, man. I just don't buy it. And I hate that I don't buy it.
0: You know, yeah, like, like, I'm really open to conspiracies. <laughs> I was watching a documentary the other day, and I, I don't believed, watch documentaries, man. <laughs> yeah, so don't documentary, watch
1: documentary filmmakers should not be trusted. Oh yeah,
0: they're the worst. They're the worst. <laughs> but I was watching one, and I almost <laughs> believed. It had me believing like Nazi Germany had alien tech. I was, I was, I was like, okay, well, how did they make the B-22? Okay, wait a minute, huh? <laughs> how?
1: Did, yeah, that's a good point. Now, once yeah. you once you start getting into that... yeah. I don't know. But the thing, like, there was something on those things. They were yeah. not natural. Like, yeah, not they all. weren't naturally occurring. And, like, they, like everyone sort of ignore, ignoring the transmissions. Like, mm-hmm. like, what was, what was sending what those was transmissions? Is that Was that, that was naturally occurring? I don't know. I just, like, I don't know.
0: I, I think I've been thinking so much about Pim, um, Dr. Pim, and that interview she had with uh, Drew it just felt like there's more it feels like there's more it just feels like there's so much more that's left to be discovered or explained
1: yeah <laughs> i mean we haven't heard anything m- m- well so isec released the video diary mm. officially right that um and i guess that was a little bit of a fuck you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to the to the it's member like nations it, yeah. you know uh, the, like when she decided that she needed to tell somebody mm-hmm. that that the Harbinger 2 mission was not scientific in purpose, but was actually military, because they did know that something was going on up there. Right. So but she's you know, she's still up there. And we're getting like very like the reports we're getting seem very sanitized from from ISEC, so mm-hmm. it seems like maybe some something <sighs> has changed there. <laughs> like the you know, the US and the EU were not were not pleased uh with that, but um yeah. <laughs> and I I did want to ask you Donald. Yeah. So, have you heard these there was like something I was it was on Twitter and I I'll I'll, I'll find it and retweet it or something. But there are these there are these rumors going around that like that people have been like I don't know how to say it exactly. That people have been speaking in tongues like unintentionally. Whoa. They don't notice that they're doing it, but other people around them notice it. But like people say like it sounds like like just like like weird sort of gibber like dream like dream logic sort of gibberishy probably something yes. that sounds like an awesome prose poem actually probably oh. is uh, what I'm imagining in my oh. mind but no, you haven't, haven't heard anything haven't, about
0: that I haven't heard about this no I guess we should move forward yes, we yeah. should sorry. the last thing sorry the last thing <laughs> the last thing I'll say um, just involving space stuff is uh, I'm really hoping that we can figure out what happened to the crew of Harbinger One I know. Dr. Yeah. Clark is up there. Yeah, she has to work with the militarized um, astronauts to survive, and <laughs> well, also, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, hopefully provide us answers to what happened to the crew of the Harbinger One. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I'm really curious about that, and I think, I mean, and people are demanding an- demanding answers, and I think that at a certain point, Isaac and the various member governments are going to have to. Well, I don't know. You don't have to. I'd like to think they're going to have to provide some answers, but but who knows? All right, so
0: yeah, amongst
1: the- all <laughs> of the amongst all of the the um, the post whale stuff that gets thrown up on <laughs> Facebook um, and uh, Twitter, um, Kathy McLeod, the cartoonist we interviewed in episode one, um, posted a pretty amazing comic on her on her Tumblr. Uh, we've linked to it on on Facebook and, and posted a link to it on our website, so you should uh, check that out at, at poetinbangkok.com. Uh, but the, the comic is called uh, Things I Fear That Will Happen If I Make More Feminist Comics.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's basically just a collection of, of uh, word balloons or thought balloons encircled by these sort of attendant like cherubim of teddy bears doing handstands and butterflies and goldfish and various things in classic Kathy style. <laughs> um, and it's a very honest but also biting and funny and deeply felt uh, articulation of her fears as an artist of what will happen if she gets into more um, feminist territory in, in, in her comics. And uh, she also includes below, below the balloons if you, if, you, uh, if you go to look at it, you'll see uh, the possible responses yeah. to, to this from, from, from others. I think sometimes it's others and sometimes it's herself kind of commenting <laughs> on her own. But here, here are just a few of them. So one of them she says, uh, my friends, my boyfriend will quickly get sick of me. And the responses are, she used to be cool. Where is this all coming from? You know, she says, I'm scared that being scared of how dudes will react makes me a bad feminist. And then she includes the response, pathetic, mm. which I think is herself saying that <laughs> to yeah. herself. Uh, and then she says, quote, basically, there'll be a mass exodus of male goodwill from my <laughs> life, and I'll have an uncomfortable realization of how much I relied on it. I mean, it'll just be depressing if every dude I thought was my friend and got it turns out to be not just part of the problem, but a willing participant. And then the response to that is just playing devil's advocate. Yeah. And then the one, and there's a number of others that are that are very, super smart and super funny. Um, but there's one that made me deeply sad and and angry. Is it says quote somehow one comic will be posted on an MRA Reddit and then it's all over. And the response to that. Is just rape threat, rape threat, rape threat.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's a powerful and funny and cutting comic, and very much of a piece with Kathy's other work. Um, but it got, it got Donald and I thinking about how, for women in Thailand, it is such a tricky. That for women in Thailand, it's tricky enough navigating their desires as artists, right? Mm-hmm. Their need to express and create, um, within the current climate of censorship. Um, in the country but they also have to deal with the societal restrictions and expectations that are placed upon them because of their gender that as as kathy articulates in in her comic they they face the the possibility of being ostracized or dismissed uh, because they're because they're women so we thought we might explore that a little bit here before we get into david lloyd's uh, interview so so donald what is the deal with gender equality in thailand
0: Before we go any further, it's important that we preface this discussion by acknowledging that we are two cisgendered foreign men talking about gender equality from a position of considerable privilege. Um, We do not mean to give the impression that we can speak for the women of Thailand. um, Or any women. Or any women. (laughs) (laughs) We set out to make a podcast about living in Bangkok and one cannot speak about issues pertaining to this city Without exploring its gender politics. Um, green the breeze, the branches green, the small boat far in the sea. What? The pony on the high Sierra. What? What?
1: <laughs> no. All right, never mind. Never okay, mind. Oh,
0: all right. <laughs> okay, so in Thailand, women account for 80% of total employment in the 10 largest export industries and 45% of the manufacturing workforce. Rural Thai women have always been a central role, or had a central role, in providing for the well-being of their families, and have been entitled to property rights and land ownership since those rights were established under the reign of King Rama V. Today, Thailand has the fifth most PhDs awarded to women as compared to men, 57% in the world. That's amazing. And has one of the highest proportions among Asian countries, 51% of female science researchers.
1: Like like our doctor,
0: Dr. Pim. Like Dr. Pim. According to the International Encyclopedia of Sexuality, they say, quote, The status of women in Thailand is perhaps higher than other countries in Asia, with the exception of Singapore. End I, quote. I'm, I'm
1: curious about that quote. Yeah.
0: <laughs> However... There are plenty of reasons to raise questions about gender equality in Thailand. Uh, The restrictive traditional Thai female dresses, um, objectification of women, and normalized sexual violence in television and movies, and the deeply disturbing and violent language used to describe Thailand's former PM, Yingluck Shinawat. One of our previous guests, uh, Pang Suan, informed me of an article written by journalist Jasmine Chia, at the harvard international review Um, in this piece chia discusses what she calls the lie of gender equality in thailand and we'll post this to our website she says quote there is a contradiction between statistics and reality on the face of it thailand doesn't seem to have a gender problem the truth is women do not suffer de jure restrictions to mobility education, and labor force participation. What women in Thailand suffer is a lack of de facto access to power, Hmm. a cultural disempowerment that is, in part, a result of sexual imperialism, state policies, and gender-specific socialization. Parallel to the story of high educational attainment and economic empowerment is the story of violent objectification. It is the story repackaged by the state ...into a normal condition of female life. Hmm. End quote. Chia goes on to speak about the commonality of misogyny among the middle class... ...the prevalent objectification and normalized sexual violence towards women in the media... ...and how Thailand profits financially from its massive sex industry... ...while criminalizing female sex workers with laws like the Prostitution Prevention and Suppression Act... ...established in 1996... I didn't know this law existed, so I looked it up. So I want to read a few sections of this law. Section 5 Whoever, for the purpose of prostitution, offers, solicits, introduces oneself to, follows, or opportunes another person on a street, in a public place, or any other place, and such act is overtly and shamelessly committed or causes nuisance to the public, shall be punished with a fine not exceeding 1,000 baht. (laughs) Section 6. Whoever congregates with another person in a prostitution establishment for the benefit of prostitution of that person or of another person shall be punished with imprisonment not exceeding one month or a fine not exceeding 1,000 baht or both. Okay, that's that's actually... (laughs) Written, that's law, okay?
1: Or at least it once was law. I'm curious to know whether the, whether the junta has continued to hold on, oh, to, yeah, on yeah, to that. Oh, yeah, I wonder, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not, they're nice sentences. They're really good sentences, <laughs> so I would hold on to them if I were the junta. Yeah,
0: they are words. They are indeed words. Okay.
1: There's definitely clauses. <laughs> there are and,
0: clauses. D- and periods. Okay. <laughs> Here, the women are vilified, uh, not the men who approach them looking for sex. The implication is that these women are a menace. Luring innocent men and corrupting Thai values. Oh, man. Uh,
1: I think just in general, we're just going to put out some observations here and n- no conclusions, simply uh, either f- facts or reflections or questions mm-hmm. that we, we have. So but I think I've, all of this is actually in the spirit of question because I don't yeah. think that I understand understand any of it. But I I was thinking about um, how in April 2014, right before the coup, um, when she was still prime minister, Yin Leng Shinawaj was, it's usually the ritual for the prime minister to uh, do, there's a ceremony to honor the cannons, like cannons that shoot cannonballs, outside the defense ministry. But in the article in in the Bangkok Post, I remember I read that she was not, even though she was the prime minister, the caretaker prime minister, she was not allowed to, to go and to put the garlands on the cannons uh, because it was tr- tradition dictated that women cannot oversee the ceremony. Wow. And so the, the, the defense secretary uh, went... Went instead to the to the quote canon worship, on on her behalf. These canons that that are revered as being somehow, as the as the Bangkok Post said, as as being magical and having some relationship to, um, having some sort of effect with the unrest in the south. So just the idea that your that your your idea of gender equality or of gender politics in the country and of power relationships in the country are are so strong that you're not going to let your you're elected granted I know there's a lot of things no. in this that, that, but you're elected you're elected prime minister uh, to go and con- conduct the ceremony yeah. is just to my outsider eyes is mm-hmm. remarkable. Yeah. Um, though I, I get, won't get into it right now, but I, but that obviously is not the, only, the the most remarkable thing in terms of how the prime minister uh, was was treated,
0: but how she was treated. I remember getting very nasty. The way people spoke about her—you
1: mean during the during the the Bangkok sh- shutdown, yeah, particularly, sh- yeah, when the, particularly when the, yeah. when the when the so this for our non Thai listeners, this was a period of time where a number of activists yeah. uh, created something called Shutdown Bangkok, mm-hmm. uh, basically occupying various parts of the city in these sort of street parties and roving uh, parades, uh, demanding that the the elected government dissolve itself for a variety of. Reasons, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but there were lots, lots of protesters out, and there were lots of posters uh, uh, of depicting uh, Yunel Shinawat.
0: They weren't criticizing necessarily her job performance.
1: Some people did. Some, some people, people got did. into that, but yeah, some no.
0: people got into that. But I noticed a lot of it was just attacking her femininity. They were attacking her as a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, just, I remember I was near selim yeah i was near selim and just turned a corner and saw this huge poster of her like a photoshop of her getting raped and yeah. i can't read the poster it's in thai i like so this is all i see i just <laughs> and then they're just people cheering you know they're just holding up the sign saying yeah you know yeah screw this lady
1: yeah no I mean like the the the, the misogyny surrounding yeah. surrounding that i mean that the that the, and there are a number of articles we can post to them that mm. that get into this that 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 kind of brought a lot of this stuff together but there you know there are all these moments there was like the the old the old prime minister referred to her once as a as a quote stupid bitch yeah. there was a university professor who Wanted to find a group of guys to come together to. Um, I think the word that was used was "quote sexually snare her." Yeah, I'm still not totally clear on what that is. <laughs> uh, a doctor, I think this was from a stage. A well-known doctor got up on uh, on the stage and offered to give her vaginal repair surgery and said that she could be a a nude model because mm-hmm. she hasn't yet hit hit menopause. It's <laughs> <That's ridiculous. laughs> it just all of these like. <sighs> These these amazing moments where you're just—it's very hard. It's very hard hearing reports of that or, or or seeing that because there was one of these protest sites right by my house, so I saw these posters as well. It's very hard to see that and to to feel any sort of sense that that, that, that any sort of sense that that is appropriate speech. Right. That any sort of sense that that is appropriate speech and just see that as violent mm. hate speech. Right. And so, what I just try to wrap my head around is just how is it that there were so many people yes. that were comfortable, <laughs> that, right, Comfortable. They were, they were they were comfor- <laughs> comfortable enough yeah. with it, um, and it wasn't as though there were not corners of Thai of the yeah. of the Thai media or of yeah. the Thai citizenry that was not critiquing it, mm-hmm. but just the the, I mean, people did not. There are a number of people that really did not like <laughs> did not like her and mm-hmm. do not like her politics, um, but that was just incredibly. Incredibly disturbing. I remember reading something by Prawit Rajanapruk, the, the old columnist for the English language newspaper The Nation, who who said who basically talked about how that kind of speech was like just evidence of a of a sort of a really deeply rooted patriarchal culture in Thai society and that even people I think he said, even people that believe that they're upholding morality. Yes. Will still somehow subscribe or feel comfortable with that? Yeah. And I guess I just want to say, like, I'm, I'm. We, we preface this by saying we're yeah. deeply conscious of our of our of our privilege, but I'm un, I'm uncomfortable s- speaking about this yeah. as a foreigner, yes. right? Because it is it, it drifts into territory where I feel uncomfortable, where I'm talking about a culture that is very different from mine. Right. And there's part of me that wants to to be open to right to be open yeah. to to different cultural attitudes, but I just don't, I don't know. I just this don't, I just, buy. I don't, I don't feel like, I just don't, I mean, well, again, because yeah. the, the yeah. other way to look at that is like, it's like ties are totally fine with misogynistic Right, and that, like, and that I mean, that yeah. obviously is yeah. not true either, yeah. right? So it just, because obviously the U.S. has yes. its fair share of, oh, yeah. of these problems and they are in many ways probably are worse. It's just sort of how overt they are here, yes. and how public yeah. they are yeah. here. I mean, if if Hillary Clinton is elected it'll be very i mean i'll be i will be watching for seeing how people within a culture actually that has freedom of expression enshrined (laughs) right like how how will people speak about her what will be the sort of accepted norms around that in in public spaces right because it's one thing to like to to use certain language in the privacy of your own home and and you know um not that that makes it okay but like Obviously people say things in private that they won't say in public, totally. but how public all of that was. Right. A poster of the prime minister being raped. Yes, right? Like you know.
0: And it's it's just happening every day continually. Just uh just a few weeks ago uh before Songkran, uh the prime the current prime minister and I don't even know what possessed him to do it really or to say this, but he addresses the media and he he says women are like candies. Okay. Um, I didn't th- see that. They should stay wrapped. So he wanted women during Songkran don't dress provocatively. Oh. He wants you to dress in traditional Thai dresses um, because nobody wants an unwrapped candy. This is just fine. Like this is, and there there was there was some backlash, but not <laughs> as much as I would have post- hoped or yeah. expected. Um, and it's... since. I remember when I first moved here. My wife has issues with Yeah, no, with, uh, yeah, dude. some of the misogyny. Uh. <laughs> with just some of the misogyny? <laughs> yeah, some of, the misogyny. She's some, cool of the misogyny. With some of it. No, she has issues. Um so like she was when we talked about moving back, she did bring these things up. She was a little bit apprehensive of moving back um just because she felt she had more freedom to speak and to do what she wanted in the US. Um and one of the things that she really didn't like about uh, living in Thailand was La Con's, uh Thai soap operas, mm. um, because they often depict women being raped, uh, and then the girl usually ends up with that guy. So it's really? like a socially. I don't know. I, I've never watched them. Rape. So I thought maybe she was exaggerating. <laughs> Then I got here, um, and I saw it. I actually saw this. Um, It's this common trope where like, uh, the girl fights, and then the guy rapes her, and she'll learn to like it, and then she ends up with him. Um, And then sometimes it, it could go the other way, like if there's a character on the show that people don't like, like a villain, she'll get raped, but in the bad way, she won't end up with the guy. That's interesting. She'll get pregnant or something like that. Um, that ingrains something yeah. into people. I feel like that there are consequences to media yeah. like that.
1: Though I'm thinking, and this is I, it's on topic mm-hmm. and off topic simultaneously. I'm thinking about the first season of Game of Thrones. Have you mm-hmm. seen it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Amelia um, Clark's character, mm-hmm. Khaleesi. Yes. Yeah. Um, she is effectively yes raped. Um, uh, I had issues <laughs> um, by the co- what's his
0: name Dugu or Dogo? Or yeah, Dogo. <laughs>
1: we're gonna get we're gonna get yeah. some mail. About I know. This. All right, this is what. Um, yeah. Exactly. Um, effect. I, mean, I don't know. Why I'm adding effectively. She is raped. She is raped. Yeah. Um, and then. As you as you put yeah. it in the Thai in the Thai soap opera yeah. language, she learns to like she learns to like it. She yeah. she learns she falls in love with him, mm-hmm. and granted, and her story over the seasons obviously is about is about uh, reclaiming or reclaiming or claiming power. Yes, but I'm just thinking about. I mean, I think that. But I think when that was when I think that I don't know. I'd like to give. It was not HBO, though. It was. I'd HBO. like to give the creators of that credit. Enough to think that they knew they were doing something transgressive. Okay. They, knew, yeah. I, I guess I'd like to think <laughs> that, but I don't. I don't know what. Yeah. I don't. It, yeah. I don't. I can't say that, right? So right. I, who's to say whether that is any? I, it's. I, yeah. It's no less problematic. Yeah. But you're. You're right yeah. that if that if there's in the middle, that at least is supposed to be a nighttime show. I think.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So but the uh, are just on like so.
1: Yeah. Or they'll yeah, be able will be on like in the in the in the restaurant yeah I guess and the, so yeah. you're just
0: watching someone get raped um you, you see well you have your somtam yeah. yeah while you have your somtam and so it's there is this like you said this uh, there appears to be this normality mm-hmm. to this misogyny mm-hmm. um and it seems to be it seems to run deep um, yeah. from what I've experienced yeah um, yeah and.
1: There are many. This is actually probably a two episode yeah, yeah. <laughs> worthy topic.
0: Uh, in a future episode, I think we're planning to have a discussion yes, about right. <laughs> uh, sex work. Um, so we'll continue some of these themes and this discussion. Um, I had the privilege of teaching at this organization that provides education and seminars and job opportunities for disadvantaged women. In Thailand, um, A lot of these women came from the sex industry. Um, they were working in the sex industry, so they wanted a change. Um, and I learned a lot from that experience and a lot yeah, about uh, gender equality in Thailand and also um, got to hear stories about their stories, about their experiences. And so, yeah, we could talk about this for a very long time, but maybe we'll go into that another episode yeah and
1: i think and maybe in that episode also because i think um and we've alluded to these these conversations before i think Mm -hmm. that if you go out at night in bangkok you are going to meet people who want to tell you stories about their experiences with thai women or thai girls is usually the uh, um the the word that is used and those are remarkable (laughs) texts (laughs) texts <laughs> uh that will maybe will maybe i think that because that does it, it obviously does have to do with gender equality yeah. but i think it has a little bit more to do with particularly um sexual politics um uh particularly orientalized yeah. sexual politics yeah. but i think we'll leave it there but it was it was one of those moments where i really appreciated i appreciated kathy putting up that comic mm-hmm. i mean i um i appreciated again and all of the things that are you i mean go look at it all of the the different pieces of herself that are contained in that the expectation of how people might respond or what or or uh, how she might how she might feel and and sort of what she feels like she's risking and i just i was really affected by that and i think that i want to keep that at the forefront of my mind and in and i think this conversation obviously comes out of that
0: i think talking about uh Kathy's comics is a good lead-in. Yes, no, that's, to the, that's, yeah, that's, that's true. The, All right. uh, interview. Um,
1: yeah. So we were, were really grateful to be able to sit down with uh, David Lloyd uh, during his visit to Chulalongkorn University, uh, where he was a guest of the Faculty of Communication Arts. And um, he came here and, and gave uh, some uh, talks and worked with some students, gave some workshops and portfolio reviews, and so we were able to catch him in the midst of that. If you don't know his work, I don't know where you've been yeah. hiding. <laughs> Best known for V for Vendetta, but he also has, has done a variety of other wonderful comics. He is a publisher now, He uh, something called ACES Weekly, which is a uh, subscription-based service, uh, and it was really uh, exciting to sit down with him and chat with him about his work. A lot of the conversation, as you'll hear, is just about Being an artist about comics, um, but obviously we also get into some of the interesting political issues that are relevant to the larger uh, frame of the show. So, without further ado, here's our interview with David Lloyd.
3: Uh, I've come to Thailand on the invitation of a friend of mine, uh, Nick Verstappen, uh, from Belgium, who now works for the university here, and um, he's invited me to talk about my work and has uh, uh, put on a little exhibition of uh, retrospective of, of some of my of some of my stuff, and uh, I'm also going to be talking to some comic artists and students of Nick's too. And um, very happy to uh, accept the invitation. I've never been here before. And uh,
1: What images did you have of Thailand kicking around in your head when you got on the plane?
3: Well, uh, a lot of the uh, information about I have about Thailand is, is based on cliché. And uh, I'm sure everyone knows the clichés, the kind of um, happy women there are here and the nice attitude uh, of freedom that there is here um, but uh, the warmth of the people is something that is globally known and the climate and the beauty of the country have you uh, have you gotten out and about a little bit since
1: arriving what sort of things have you what sort of things have you seen either you know proper sightseeing attractions or just things that you've noticed that you found interesting so far
3: Uh, No, I haven't been able to, I've only been here about two days, so I haven't had a chance to look around. Um, I've noticed that it's extreme, very warm, probably uh, maybe a little bit too warm, although I love the warmth, I'm from England, and, uh, you know, we're desperate for it wherever we can find it. Yeah, so uh, I'm certainly enjoying that warmth and uh what really struck me is the color of the cars here, which is quite you know they're all there's the 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 brightness of the color of the cars they all look like little toy cars i mean i've never seen <laughs> it's like, like somebody sprayed them without any kind of moderation uh um uh, for the primary colors at all and uh uh which is extraordinary and and quite you know uh, part of part of obviously the cultural landscape is Bright colors are loved here, and part of the of the um, surroundings there's a lot of malls I can see, and the area I'm in is uh, is quite heavy with uh, traffic and people and uh, um, in one regard reminds me of uh, sao Paulo actually in brazil are you are you very aware
1: uh, as an artist when you go to a new place of sort of how you are you're looking at that place as an artist or as somebody who works in images. And I mean, you spoke about the, the colors of the car, right? <laughs> so it seems that you're you know, definitely tuned into color.
3: Well, that's, that's the first thing I notice. I mean, and, and often if I'm going somewhere, what I, try not to, what I try to do is not to do any research about it at all. But I like to visit a place and actually have that impression wash over me immediately. Um, that's how I felt when I went to uh, Sao Paulo. I did a book on Sao Paulo, as a matter of fact. And before I went there, I did very little research. I just wanted to have that whole impression so that I could report it. The first thing that I do in any place, new place, is I just like to go out and walk and see what, what, is, what is particularly different about it that, that in the routine of life. So, you know, what, what's the difference things about the supermarket? Okay, you know, what's different about a supermarket in Thailand than the supermarket in England? I think that's interesting. That tells you more about the people, I think. And also the television. When I went to America for the first time, you know, I would spend a day just watching television. <laughs> just a day. Because that tells you so much about where you are. I mean, I'm in a hotel that, is, that has a number of Thai channels, but also some, obviously, some tourist channels, because, you know, you have French and blah, blah, blah. But no, I'm, I'm very interested in those, those impressions that you get as an ordinary person.
0: I wanted to go back into your past a little bit. Um, and wanted to ask you if you could paint us a mental picture about where you grew up.
3: Okay, I, I grew up in um, a place called Enfield, which is a um, suburb of London, which is the outermost northern suburb of London. So if you leave London by the north, you, you hit Hackney, Tottenham, Edmonton, and then Enfield. But Enfield is a kind of buffer between London and Hertfordshire. So it's, it's before the urban becomes rural effectively. It's a, just a basically suburb, an ordinary working class suburb. I was just an ordinary working class kid, working class family. Uh, my dad was on nights most of the time. Not much money. I grew up watching lots of TV. So that's, that's something that added to my resources. But uh, like most suburbs, um, it, it became boring as a teenager. You know, I'm, uh, I'm from that period of uh, the Beatles, the Stones, and the Small Faces, uh, which is like uh, all the terrible, boring, suburban world and a need to get out of it and of course actually american culture was uh, was the thing that uh, that really gave you spirit i mean as a working class kid at that time you know america represented the glamour the energy in that sense uh that, that i'm that's common to most of my peers as uh, as as british comic artists we uh, we fared on american culture very strongly and moderated by the, by the high quality of, 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 of British TV <laughs> and I I say that in no way as a slight um, but uh, but uh, um, you know we we ended up with a mix of, of, of very literary uh, standards and artistic standards with the pop culture nature of uh, of america and uh, i think that's what you know you look at a lot of br- british creators now that's what that's what you've got you've got that blend and uh, you know has uh, been very successful
1: i'm curious about your um sort of the, the the roots of your i guess artistic imagination so obviously it it came from that physical and cultural Uh, Environment, but are there? When you first started drawing, were you were you drawing uh, what you what you saw? Were you drawing what was around you, or were you drawing uh, uh, sort of versions of the of the worlds that you were seeing on American television, or were you were you inventing your own worlds that were far away from the environment?
3: Yeah, well, that's I'm I I I regret that I was not the sort of art student that uh, that went out and drew trees um I, you know I should have i think maybe more, but no i mean i was uh, I thought the idea of going out and drawing trees or or still life, which you're supposed to do in art classes, was incredibly boring, and in that in that regard, I was not unusual with anybody that wanted to do was was interested in fantasy or or illustrating or you know, or illustrating comics or something. You, you know, in that regard, I was not unusual, and I didn't even do life classes. You know, I, I I learned my figure drawing through books and through just uh, observing. I don't know exactly. I, I just had to work very hard at, at being an artist, and I never had a sketchbook. I never used a sketchbook. I mean, I, sometimes, in to some degree, I I count myself as not really an artist because so many, so a lot of my colleagues have sketchbooks and never used one. I, you know, the only time I'd ever sketch anything, it would be as if it was a reference or something, you know, that you needed. But I only sketch to tell a story. I only draw to tell a story, basically. And that was it. I really, I really uh, learned how to draw because, how to draw better because I realized my shortcomings. But in terms of telling a story, I'm a natural. I'm, I have no shame in, in saying that. Um, I never really had to study anything about comic strip technique. I, I guess maybe because I had great models. Uh, you know, if you, have, if, you, if you learn from great people, I think, or you're inspired by great people, I suppose you end up copying what they do or, or somehow ingesting what they do. But anyway, I, as far as telling a story, I've never had any trouble with that. And in, you know, in no way. Do you remember the, the first piece of
1: sequential art, the first comic that you that you drew and what, what that story what that story was?
3: Well, the very first one is something you can discount, really, I think. I, when I was a – I had a friend, and we did this really crazy, stupid thing that was like a three-frame called Jim Tack and Jack Boot. And I, it was just – don't ask me how – you know, it was the adventures of a tack and a boot. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I must have been – Nine, ten, something, something, nine, ten, ridiculous. It was just a crazy, stupid idea. Um, but it was like, it was hardly worth counting. But the, the only one I, the one I did that is actually the first one that actually means anything and that was really a comic strip was, um, something I did when I was about 13. I did an adaptation of an Arthur C. Clarke story called Security Check, which I did as a two part, two page strip. And, um, and I, that was inspired by Ditko. I, I'd just seen Steve Ditko's work. This is before Spider-Man, it's when he was doing these great little Twilight Zone short stories with uh, Stan Lee. So, you know, that's what I did. And, uh, you know, I've still got it. And it's, it's still it's obviously inspired by Steve Ditko. But from that point on, I was doing strips um, off and on because I was just... I became in love with the, the the idea of it.
0: So you must have had both positive and negative collaborations over the years. Um, positive like <laughs> the boot and tack. Um, but I want to know about, uh, I also want to know about a collaboration that you felt later in your career that might have been vital to, I guess, influencing your outlook and your, the way you approach your art,
3: um, I don't think there is. I don't think. Uh, I don't think. I mean, obviously, the first the first collaboration I had uh, was with Alan with VIFA um, Vendetta. And it was the first collaboration that uh, Alan uh, did, so it was his first collaboration and mine. But I don't think it influenced me in any way. I don't think I've. I don't think I've worked with anybody who's influenced me artistically. You either enjoy working with them or you don't. I've never, I've only worked once with an, with a writer who was no good, and that's just for a short story. But I've been very lucky. I've worked with some really good writers. I mean, Jamie Delano, uh, Garth Dennis, Grant Morrison. I mean, they're just all great. The only diff. I tell you, the only difference between them um, is that. Uh, Jamie Delano was very happy to plunge into the Marvel method. Now, I don't know how much you know about the sort of like comics, uh, the way they're constructed, but basically, you, I, the Marvel method is basically where you have a plot, you have a plot, uh, and then the artist breaks it down into into the frames, and then the writer writes to that. But that is seen by some writers as a loss of control. Jamie, the first time I worked with Jamie, I suggested we do that. And he said, yep, that sounds good. And uh, we did some good work from that. But when I suggested it to Garth, Garth ran screaming (laughs) because he just wants that, he wants that control. He wants that ability to be able to see, you know, at least have some, you know, what he sees in his head and he's written down, he wants that, he wants to see at least that there. And uh, when you break down from a kind of plot line or basic or an action, a page of action, you're, you're, never, you're never guaranteed with that. Um, but that's the only difference. And, uh, but I can't, I can't say that any working with collaborators of, as, uh, as, um, has influenced me really.
1: The germ of the story that became V for Vendetta w- was yours, uh, as I understand it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about where that idea came from and how, and how you decided to develop it yourself, and how you decided to approach Alan Moore uh, to collaborate with him on that?
3: Okay, well, there were actually two germs of the actual final or the, the final concept, but I mean, uh, in order to go back to what you're saying, me asking Alan to collaborate with it. This is what happened. I worked with an editor. The editor of the magazine that V first appeared in worked initially at Marvel UK. They had a, 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 a British division. And when I, when I worked for that editor, he, I worked on a magazine that had various kinds of characters. It had a science fiction character, it had a master vigilante character, and other kind of characters. Now, when that editor left Marvel and set up his own independent magazine, he wanted the same mix in his magazine. So having worked for him successfully on the masked Journey character, which I won't describe, um, he said, can you do something like, like that for me? And the initial plan was for me to write and draw it. But at the time, I had been working with Alan on Doc 2 stories. And, uh, and I thought, well, you know, I could write it. But if I get Alan to write it, it's going to be better. So uh, I asked Alan if he wanted to collaborate with it. He was already on board, this magazine, with an update of a character called Marvel Man, which is an old British comic character. So Alan came on board with it. And this is how the actual basic concept of V appeared. Both myself and Alan, before we'd worked for Warrior, had created two characters that were urban guerrillas fighting a fascist dictatorship in the future England. Mine was a female urban gorilla called Evelina Falkerbridge. Alan had written another character called The Doll, who was a kind of a terrorist in white face makeup. He hadn't been able to sell that either. But those, those two stories had been done separately. So we both were on the same, we were both wanting to do the same thing. So when we got together to do this, we thought, hey, let's do this. Let's do that here in some form. And uh, it was also, actually, it was important to at the time because in 79, 80, uh, there was a burgeoning radical right-wing movement. And we thought that was a kind of threat that, uh, you know, it'd be nice to sort of say something about and which we had been saying something about. So we just got together and we put those two characters together. The, we had an initial outline in which Alan described this character who had been taken to a concentration camp in this future England, uh, experimented on, escaped and vowed vengeance against the government and to defeat it, blah, blah, blah. But that was all we had, that thing. And then we were floundering around about what he was going to look like, what his deep motivations were going to be. And then one, one crazy afternoon, I had this brainwave about Guy Fawkes. And I just thought it was a kind of wacky idea to begin with. But then, you know, thought, what a great idea that is. Bring back a a failed revolutionary and make him a successful revolutionary. And, you know, he's crazy enough to adopt the actual costume and the persona of this character. And um, because we've got that, because he is crazy. So, and uh, I just ran it past Alan and said, yeah, it sounds great. So, and that was it. And that's, and that, you know, so just. It's is just an accident. A lot of creativity is just accident, you know. You think, and then you get that light, that light bulb thing, that you know, in a balloon, and then you think, yeah. And it's just like, that's it, and that's how that happened, really. That's so interesting that it was
1: that you each had something cooking, and then you, so when in that collaboration, we're both bringing so much energy and 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 narrative, and and as you say, sort of political and social thinking. V, or a codename V, the, the anarchic revolutionary at the heart of the comic, is, is seeking to bring down a, a fascist British government in the late 90s. Um, and his hideout, the Shadow Gallery, uh, is a repository of literature and music and film and, and paintings um, that have been rescued from the, the fascists who are seeking to eradicate culture. How much did the, this idea of, of a government threatening to eradicate art and culture... How much did that emerge out of the England that you were living in at that
3: time? Uh, n- not at all. I mean, the, the, model, the model for the Society of V is Germany in the 30s. I mean, that was it. I mean, you know, Germany in the 30s, uh, population comes out of mass unemployment, hyperinflation, and they seek a savior. Who do they find? And what does he do? Well, to get rid of all the culture and put up, put up Nazi Nazi stuff. That's it. That's exactly what we were basing on. And, uh, and how ironic now that there's another mad fanatical regime that wants to go and, and knock down all the, all the elements of culture uh, that are against its particular ground zero policy. It keeps on going on. It happened in Cambodia. Khmer Rouge did the same thing. We're going to get rid of all that history. It's just, It keeps on happening all the time. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why V is so constantly relevant, you know, because it's talking about things that just keep on happening, and it's deeply depressing. But, uh, you know, that's it.
0: So you talked about its continuing relevance, and it it always seems to be um, relevant. Well, you couldn't have known that the extent to which V for Vendetta and the Guy Fox mask uh, would become synonymous with protest and dis- dissonance. But did you have a sense that you were creating a political document? Um, or was it just another comic living alongside Miracle Man and uh, in the pages of Warrior?
3: No, no, we were, well, we, we didn't know how far it was going to go, of course, but we, were, we did want to do something important. We, that was the whole point of it. I mean, if there was just no point in just doing another story. Um, and especially because we had the freedom to do what we wanted to do. I mean, the, the magazine it appeared in, because it was an independent magazine, he, he couldn't pay us uh, industry rates, And part of the compensation of that was that we owned the characters and we could do what we liked. We had that freedom. Everything else we'd done in the, you know, before that, and this is way back before, I mean, creator owned and royalties and all that, it's all common now. In the industry, parts of the industry at least. But then there was—it was all just work fire. Everything, everybody else we were working for, it was work fire, and you had nothing really. You got paid the page rate, and that was it. But in this circumstance, we had freedom, and when you got freedom, you can do whatever you you can tell stories the way you want to, and about what you want to do. So I think so we took the opportunity of doing that. But we didn't know, we didn't know how it was going to end up. But I think it's fantastic the way it has. You know, with all the masks being used for demonstrations against tyranny of all kinds, whether perceived or otherwise. And, uh, you know, I think it's great. Mask does represent what the story represents. It's resistance to tyranny. And, and it's good that there's, and it's universal, and it's neutral. Um, so I think it's great. So Thai artists whether
1: they're filmmakers or writers or dancers or cartoonists, are, um, must contend with, with laws that limit uh, freedom of expression, but also with a sort of cultural and social milieu in which um, it's very, very common to self-censor for a, variety of, for a variety of reasons. When you were creating V for Vendetta, or I suppose I could ask this about any of your other, your other work, uh, how transgressive or dangerous did it did it feel to to create that that comic within that particular within that particular moment in England?
3: Well, it wasn't transgressive and was I mean the thing about you've got to remember is that um comics in England are not regarded as of any value at all, really. So it's not like we were writing for a newspaper or something, or doing even or doing even a cartoon for a newspaper. You know, we could be as, as radical and subcultural as we wanted to, effectively. And so we did. I mean, we never, had any, uh, we never had any problem with that at all. And in terms of, of self censorship, personally or in any other circumstance, I think you just have to remember, you know, who do you want to reach? If you do want to reach the widest audience possible, you can still, still uh, tell a very powerful story without, being, without offending anybody, for instance. And I don't think anything we did in V was offending anybody. I mean, obviously, some people. Oh, we're talking about homosexuality. Well, that's terrible. That's shocking. I mean, kids read comics. Yeah, what on earth are you doing? What on earth are you doing? Well, um, well, we don't listen to that because we weren't thinking that comics are for kids. If it, you know if we were doing it for Bino, you know, we might have had to had to worry about that and think to ourselves. Well, we're we're actually stepping over the limit here. But we weren't doing it for that. We were doing it for um, a comic that was aimed for a teenage adult audience like 2000AD uh, was a similar kind of product in, in England at the time, which had Judge Dredd and various other things. But I must say that there's no point in in, in being provocative for the sake of being provocative. There's no point in that. You, you If you're going to be provocative, be provocative because you've got to, because that's a way you've got to get your point across. But um, I mean... Just on that, on that basis, what I'm doing right now is I'm actually publishing now, and I'm doing something called Aces Weekly, which is, uh, which is a digital comic art magazine, and I want to reach as many people as possible because it's subscription-based, and uh, so I want to be able to tell powerful stories in there, and we do. We do have some very good stuff in there. That doesn't offend anybody because you know I do want to reach as many people as possible, and and in fact that was one of our our uh, points with V. We wanted to reach a wider readership. In fact, a lot of the techniques, artistic techniques used in V, are come about because of that. I mean, that was the first strip that that we that I'd done that didn't have sound effects in it. Well, in the mainstream, I mean, I'd done, been doing strips before. Of, that didn't have sound effects in, but for the mainstream, for the industry, I took out sound effects, I took out thought balloons, because that, those, that language is, is something that actually puts off people who don't usually read comics. And what we wanted to do, with V especially, was reach a wider readership. And we actually achieved that. Um, so everything in V was calculated to get beyond ordinary comic readers and get to a wider audience. A much wider audience. So I think it's very important to to use whatever tools you've got to reach as many people as possible. So you know the idea of self-censorship. Well, I would, uh, you know, I would I censor myself to reach the people I want to. But if I if I felt the need to be provocative, then I would be yeah that's that's such an interesting. I mean, especially with with Aces digital, which I've,
1: I've been reading in an anthology, the, the collections not the not the weekly version, but just the it seems that, that you fully embrace the digital medium for for that reason as well as the um, I mean you've, you've oriented the page from a, from a, a conventional vertical. A page of a comic book, which I suppose most comic book readers are used
3: to 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 the horizontal, because of that's the shape of screens. <laughs> it's the same thing, and uh, yeah, and and the reason why we did that was because that's the the comic the computer by uh, computer screen. That's the ratio. Why would you want to change that? It's insane. And and of course, with the tablet, you can flip it over so that you could use a portrait quite effectively. But we don't want to do that. We want something to run across all platforms. So it's across laptop, desktop. Um, tablet and smart TV, put it on your smart TV, and that's all. That's all horizontal format. I want it to go straight across like that, without flipping or any of that stuff. And uh, I remember I found it the first time I actually saw comics, uh, uh, supposedly digital comics on so screen. They were trying to f- ape the idea of, of flipping a page, and I just I thought, what the hell are you doing? You know what you're trying to make it look like a comic with a page that you flip over, you want you on a screen. Right. And there's so many stupid things in, in, in digital comics presentation that just don't address the fact that you're just doing it through cyberspace. you know you're publishing through cyberspace, you're getting right out there, you're going directly to the reader. all you're doing is changing the surface. That's all you're doing and we don't even do motion comics, we don't do that stuff, because that's not comics anyway, that's animation, that's got nothing to do with comics. So we just, comics, on screen, using the same art form as ever it was, that's it, just exactly the same, we just change the surface, and that's it, and it's as simple as, simple as pie, and it cust, cuts out massive costs, enormous costs. So the reader gets 20 pages a week for a pound a week, Right? And the money comes back to the creator without anything hived off or any unnecessary distributors or any of that stuff that you don't need. And it's all great. So you
0: always stay mindful of trying to make things accessible to the reader, um, trying to reach and widen the audience. Um, and then I'm also thinking about your work with The Horrorist and The Farmer and The Soldier. Uh, which appeared in crisis. Um, so you're obviously politically minded. Um, do you consider yourself an activist? Do you use your art as a type of activism?
3: Well, I do think, I think, um, I think that if you, if you have the gift of being able to tell a story or communicate and you have something to say, then you should say it. Otherwise, it's a waste. What's the point? If you don't have anything to say and you just want to tell you know, another story of Spider-Man, that's great. Well, I've got nothing against that. And I have the greatest respect for all artists that do that. But if you've got something to say and you do have some viewpoint, then use it. Because, you know, what, what's the point of having that gift of communication if you don't use it? There's no point. But The Farmer and Soldier, I didn't write that, but that was a very good story. It was a very, very good story. But it's not, about, it's not just about politics, it's about people. You know I'm interested in seeing things that are about people and how people live and so any any story I tell, I did a crime novel called "Kickback," which is about uh corruption, a corrupt police force and a, and a policeman who decides he can't do this anymore but that's that that could have been about a surgeon, a corrupt surgeon. it could have been about a civil servant, you know we're all prone to corruption, every single one of us are all prone to temptation. And we take it and we do things that other people are doing because they're doing them. Oh, it's like, well, yeah, but he's doing it. So, you know, we are so flawed. If I, you know, I want to tell a story about that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's cool. As long as I'm interested in stories that are about something and about people and because I care about it. But if I didn't, well, that's okay. I could be doing... Green Goblin, doesn't matter.
1: <laughs> One of my favorite pieces of your of work that you've done is the, is The Horrorist and um the you collaborated with Jamie Delano on that uh, comic uh, for DC Comics in 1995. And, I mean it's it's an amazingly arresting piece of work uh, and just the 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 graphic storytelling, the visual storytelling in that is is really wonderful. The title character, The Horrorist is a sort of avatar of of war and trauma and and suffering and seems or it seemed to me as I was reading it uh, to have been inspired both both narratively but also visually by images of suffering that came out of maybe particularly Ethiopia and Sudan into the West and into the Western imagination in in the 1980s and the, I mean, the character of Constantine he first encounters her in a in a war photographer's uh, photograph that has been. Taken apart for a, some sort of fashion advertisement, I think. Were there particular images that you'd encountered in the media that inspired the way you designed that character or approached the, the, the visual storytelling of that story?
3: Well, the, uh, the drawing of the girl did come from a photograph. And I think, I mean, before that, we had, we did have, there was that terrible drought in Ethiopia. Where there was there was the live aid concert, all that there was a big fundraising I think that, that partly led to what Jamie was writing about but um <clears throat> yeah the girl the girl was from a photograph that i that i I found, and um well, you know, Horace is about the third world visiting vengeance uh, uh, upon our so-called civilized world. That's basically what it is. In, in one sense, it's a bit like, it's like ISIS, isn't it? It's the same thing. You know, it's the, we, you, you, we are reaping some, uh, oh, yeah. the harvest of, uh, of, of what has been done in the past, either consciously or, or unconsciously. By the way, we, we've treated other countries. And basically, that's what the horrorist is. The horrorist is a ghost, it is it is the uh, spirit of third world vengeance coming, coming to 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 visit us, and uh, we're not prepared for it. As we're not prepared for it now. But that's, uh, you know, it was. I mean, the, the great thing about the horrorist is it is, it has that. Ble- it, there's no happy ending, and it's like Jamie is famous for his. Uh, his, his political viewpoint and, and his uncompromising attitude to, to things. And, of course, uh, Constantine is a great nihilist. It's like, you know, it's like... And nihilistic though he is, through that, somehow, he feels he feels some spirit of humanity, somehow. And I think she probably leaves him with that. that that's what he's left with, you know. But it's a fascinating story. I mean, I just... You know, when you do stuff like that, it's just great. And as I say, yeah, uh, to do that with the trust of Jamie, because that that was done as I as I said with the Marvel method. So you break that down, and uh, and Jamie deals with that. And uh, but just one of those stories that, again is about something. And uh, and uh, I'm glad that people like respond to it so well now. I mean, I, I hear a lot of people sort of like. Sort of talking about the horrorist it's quite a while now, you know. But you know, if people that only felt that way when it came out—that would have, that would have been that would have been much better, you know. <laughs> but that's that's the thing about comics. You know, there's so much product out there. I think this is one of the big problems about the mate, the industry specifically. There is so much stuff out there that people don't even get to know the quality of a lot of it until after the event, after the fact, you know. And uh, I think that's a big problem with comics. It's just too much stuff out there, and a lot of it gets lost. that shouldn't get lost at all.
1: What I found interesting is that graphic novels, and I suppose single-issue comics to perhaps a lesser degree, um, have, uh, over the last couple of decades, become recognized as serious literature and art. Uh, Perhaps more, well, certainly more so than they were in the 30s or 40s. But do you think that cartooning or or sequential art still retains sort of a bit of the kind of countercultural energy that it had when it was operating more in the shadows without that kind of respectability. Uh that and the respectability certainly has has brought a lot of good as well. But is there also still a little bit of that sort of yeah, that sort of shadow energy about it that that is that is helpful to either you or other creators?
3: <sighs> um that's an interesting question because I think um at the time we were doing the nobody was doing what we were doing uh, you know comics in general were kind of a bit stagnant you know and nobody was really exploring frank miller had done dark knight he did he, he was starting some of that radical stuff but it was slow start and there was only a few people doing that and then people took up on took up on it and then everybody tried to be radical not Understanding what that meant, probably, and and then you did have, you know, there was a grap- the graphic novel came in as a sort of like a saviour of the of of the form because comics had all this baggage of being just Superman and Bigfoot stuff, and then you know, but it, it gained um, a level of respectability. There is still a small press. The small press is still growing. There's, small, there's a lot of small press out there. And a lot of indies. Whether any, I don't know whether anybody's doing anything, anything challenging. It's an interesting question. I think it's a cultural thing, too. I think you've got a... if you, you look at the way, I mean, look, in the 60s and 70s, it was, a, it was supposed, or it was commonly supposed, that the young would always be rebellious. Now, since the 80s, that's gone. I, you can't rely on, on, on the younger generation being rebellious in any way, shape, or form now. I don't know what's happened, uh, but I think the desire for radically changing uh, society or culture has somehow been dampened somehow. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, social media is part of it, I think. People, t- people tend to sort of, like, gather and talk amongst themselves instead of going out and trying to change things. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. It's just that I think a lot of the norms of, of, and means of expression of being radical have been taken over. Without getting too heavy, I think the corporations try, don't want anybody to, to, be, to upset the apple cart. Um, and I think they're finding a way of stopping anybody uh, upsetting the apple cart. I think a symptom of that is what's happening in America now, which is quite fascinating. P- people have been repressed in many ways. They're bursting out in two areas. You've got Trump, and then you've got Bernie Sanders on the other side. Now, there's two ends of... There are two polarized ends of society. One that is yearning for a sort of kind of socialism and a real true justice, social justice. And the other one is just looking for strength to be wielded Uh, To make sure they get what they deserve, and that is that is a symptom, I think, of there's too much control of the population, and by corporations, and not it's not the political parties, it's corporations that run the political parties and lobby groups that run that. You know, the world is just controlled now. I'm fascinated, in a grimly, by what's what's going to happen. In the uh, in 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 America, and I I, I, I just I, I mean I love them. I've been to America. I've got great lo- lots of American friends, and I just hope it all doesn't work out too badly. You know, but it's looking very strange out there.
1: No, it is. And I mean, it was, it was particularly strange the last couple of days, sort of, on the one hand, we've, we've, you know, we were waiting for the, you know, waiting for the whales to arrive, these UFOs to hit the atmosphere on the one hand. So we're waiting for this potential apocalypse on the one hand. On the other hand, Donald Trump was just continuing to, just spout to, you know, (laughs) to be himself, you know, in the face of, you know, in the face of all of the other real problems in the world. So it was fascinating. But but I just wanted to go back for a second, maybe to what you're saying about the, the young, young people and sort of the their relationship to, I suppose, to, to, to protest or to... How did you put it? There, We can't rely on them to... Always be rebellious. To always be rebellious. During the, the 2014 coup uh, in May of 2014 here in Thailand, uh, one of the first signs of, of rebellion against the, the coup makers were young people going to malls um, and flashing uh, what in the U.S. is known as the Boy Scout salute or uh, what is used in the Hunger Games films um, as a sign of protest. Um, So you had all these young people standing on, uh, standing around these malls, flashing the Hunger Games salute and then being hauled off by military officers. (laughs) And it was this strange moment. We've talked a little bit about the podcast before the strange moment of, of where culture or, or, or art or literature is entering the world in a very strange, uh, sort of surreal way. And I suppose I just wanted, I just got me thinking about how it must have been surreal for you when the guy Fox mask started spilling out off of the pages of your comic book <laughs> into the real world. I mean, what was your reaction when when you learned that the Fox mask had first been used by protesters uh, at the Church of Scientology, and I suppose at any of the other moments where that's been used, that just must have been a, an astonishing thing as a, as, a, as a creator, as an artist, to, to see that.
3: The Scientology protest was the first time I saw that, but I, I was sent a cutting of it, sort of like a, just a colleague said, "Hey, Dave, look at this." You know, I just I felt that it was kind of completely understandable because the thing is that that is because of what V is about. It's about Resistance to tyranny and desire for freedom, and uh, and of course in the movie itself, you know, this is all comes from the movie, of course, because you know the mask is movie merchandise. It was actually, that I think was the first time it was used was by accident because somebody had found a discarded mask and they used it and thought it was a good idea, and somebody thought, oh, that that is. I don't know how much any of those early users knew about the the provenance of it, but anyway, the point is that. Personally, because it was it was used as a symbol that was representative of the story, I wasn't particularly shocked by it, and I just thought, "Well, that's great. That's that's good. That's good." And then I saw it being used more, and then it's been adopted now by Anonymous and Occupy. Used it and all sorts, and uh, I'm very happy with that. I'm very proud of that that, that it's taken on that uh, that that identity because it's uh, you know it represents. The mask represents what the story represents you know so I think that's fine and everybody using it is doing it is 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 trying to do good in the best way they know how you can argue about their systems if you wish depending upon your point of view but they're all they're all trying to do good and they're all acting in the in the spirit of, of what the mask means just your, your
1: point about the the fact that the 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 mask was movie merchandise um so at the time Warner owns the the design now um how did how did that happen i mean if you i mean uh, yeah how did how did that happen that they just happened to own that
3: the right to that well how it happened to become Warner copyright is basically is simple because when we did v for, uh Van initially for the the British magazine, we owned the copyright of it but then Um, when the publisher of that magazine ran out of money, um, V was in hiatus for a while. And then DC, you know, they wanted to do it, but they would not have continued. They didn't want to publish it unless they owned it. So, you know, we made a decision to sell it to them and we got a percentage and and that was it. So from that point on, from that point on, it belonged to DC and then, of course, uh, Warner Brothers. But... uh, you know a lot of people make the point that it's kind of ironic that uh, that people um protesting against uh corporation power and generally um are actually uh providing income for the corporation itself, but it's a very small irony <laughs> it's a very it's a very small irony in the bigger picture you know and uh and so you know it doesn't bother me. And, you know, let's face it, that mask belongs to the world now, really. And uh, there's not much one of us could do if, about it if they wanted to sort of, like, stop it. It is banned in Saudi Arabia, though. Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia. Hmm. Well, it, I was in the, a mall by my... Because,
1: as you say, there are a lot of malls in Bangkok. I was in a mall by my house the other day, and in the, there's, like, sort of independent T-shirt vendor. And on, and on the wall for 100 baht, you can buy a version of the, uh, of the Guy F- It's only t-shirts and the mask for sale at <laughs> this particular establishment. I'm just curious for your reaction to this, because in, in 2013, protesters who were seeking to oust the democratically elected Ginluk Shinhawatra donned hundreds of the Guy Fawkes masks and their march through the mall district of Bangkok. These, the v, for, v for Thailand was the name of the, the group, were largely pro-establishment, anti-democratic, and were seeking to to make sure that the the institution of the monarchy was protected. So the, the use of the mask by this group, and and who eventually supported the what became known as shutdown Bangkok shutdown, and then which led up to the coup, which overthrew the government. I suppose just the the, the use of the mask has been seen by some as perhaps like a slightly larger irony. <laughs> I'm just curious your thoughts on that of just the the use of that that mask that symbol being adopted. Yes, technically, as 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 protest and as protest against government, even though technically what it was was a protest against elected government.
3: Well, I don't think you can stop anybody using it in the way they want to use it. Uh, once upon a time, I saw a fascist group actually using part of the imagery of the film because it, of the of the daggers that violent image. You know, they were using that, but. You can't really stop people using it. I just think that most people who do use it will be using it because they realize what it actually means. The thing about anything, you know, once it's out in the world, it's like art generally. Once art is out in the world, that's it. There's nothing you can do about it. It's out there. So what people do with it, you just hope that it will be used uh, properly. You can only hope, can't you?
1: Well, we just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Maybe just as we as we go, could you just tell us uh, how uh, people can find you or your projects online and any new projects that you've got coming up that you'd like people to keep an eye out for?
3: Uh, sure. Well, I've got a website. Uh, not updated, I'm afraid, but it's got lots of stuff on there if you're interested in what I'm doing, which is l And uh, Ace's is weekly. You can reach and see what we're all about via www. Acesweekly.co.uk, not com.co.uk. I think that's all you need to know. I mean, I'm, you know, we were on Facebook, of course, we're on Twitter. Yeah. And I just want to thank you, uh Copcorn Crub.
1: <laughs> Capcom Thank you so much, David. Really appreciate it. Thanks.
2: Thank you
0: so i think uh one of the things that most stood out to me during the interview is david said that he's never had a collaboration that's influenced him artistically um i found that yeah that was kind of surprising it was curious right um so he doesn't even he's worked with a lot of writers um one bad one, uh-huh. but <laughs> I'm so curious you who know, that one bad writer was. <laughs> but even, even working with Alan Moore, um, he didn't take anything away artistically mm. from working with Alan. I don't know. And it also is sort of in huge <laughs> opposition to previous guests that we've had that grow from collaboration, that that thrive on collaboration. Che and Yo, they love collaborating with other. Mm writers and other artists, um Dino. Yeah. That is yeah. that's yeah. what yeah. Da Garuda is. Yeah. Um so it was very it was very unique to me to have a person say that they've never grown artistically yeah. or benefited artistically from collaboration. Yeah,
1: I mean I think maybe it's a fine it's a fine line. I mean I was surprised by it too, but I think perhaps he was he was trying to I I don't know, perhaps he was trying to make a distinction between being influenced artistically. Well, I guess we could sort of get mm-hmm. into what actually that means and sort of enjoying collaboration because yeah. I think he I think he I think he actually does enjoy collaborating. Yeah. I think like he talked about how exciting it was to work with yeah. Jamie DeLano yeah. on The Horrorist for example. And I think, you know, the, the collaboration with Alan Moore I'm sure was incredibly complicated, but I'm sure, <laughs> you know, but I'm sure was 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 fascinating. Yeah. Um but and fruitful. But I, su- and fruitful. <laughs> but I guess I mean I suppose we should have asked him what he meant by yeah. that, you know, like, yeah. though I suppose we did frame the question, so I guess we, bad, we, should, we should have clarified what we yeah, meant by that, bad but bad I listener. think that, but you're, but you're right, like, yeah. just that idea that you would go into something like that and then have an idea that you come out unchanged mm-hmm. um, is, seems unlikely. Though he, he's he's terribly confident about, yeah. I mean, he, I liked how he he's was a just natural. He was just saying, he was like, I'm a natural storyteller, and I, I mean, as someone who is not a natural storyteller, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, all right, man, I guess that's, I guess I mean, that's great. If I yeah. mean, and you actually, he showed at the lecture I went to. He actually showed a comic that I think he made when he was like thirteen. Was it boot and Tech? No, it wasn't Boon and okay. Tack. It was a no. Yeah, it was a different one. That was actually like it was beautiful, and it like or wow. okay. like the composition, the page composition huh. of the strip. But it was beautiful. I was like, I was like, fair enough. All right, fair, fair enough. enough. <laughs> <laughs> you have a pretty good yeah. a pretty good sense. He was still working on like folds in the arm of his uh of the his suits his character's suit, uh-huh. but um. But otherwise, it was pretty good storytelling. I guess I was, I was struck by a number of things. I think we, we suggested we were surprised by what he had to say about self-censorship and about reaching a wider audience
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and therefore self-censoring. Though I suppose, I don't know, I guess the idea that self-censorship is a, a, about not offending someone. Yeah. I guess is just an interesting. It's sort of. It was interesting to, to glimpse that that's his slant on it, yeah. right? That self censorship is about. I might say something that might offend someone, so I'm not going to say it.
0: Right. What do you think? Is I that, guess that's is harder that, for is an that, artist in Thailand because there's so much that people could be offended by.
1: Right, but I suppose that is. The, I guess that is fundamentally the same reason. I'm now changing mm-hmm. my mind. I guess that is fundamentally the same reason why people self censor here, yeah. while they just they, they, don't they, want to they, they don't want to offend anyone. Yeah. Um, but and I guess the degree to that is different. I don't know. I guess it just. It, I chafed at it a little bit because mm-hmm. I think, I think I, I I appreciate what he said about being provocative for the sake of being provocative. Yeah. Though I suppose some art that is what that yeah. the purpose of that art. Yeah. But I don't know, I, don't, I guess just also if you're thinking so much about your audience, if you're thinking so much about getting the most people yeah. to, to witness your art, that you are then going to limit your speech. I don't know. That yeah. just, I, just, it, I guess I'm also saying that as a poet, oh. where we assume no one is reading our work. Yeah. <laughs> so there's no there's no real question of like reaching the widest audience possible. Uh, <laughs> clearly, when we put this podcast yeah. together, we were really thinking about yeah. how do we reach the <laughs> largest audience possible with a podcast. Yeah. I know yeah. it'll be about artists in Thailand. Yeah, that's right. And then we'll call it "Poet in Bangkok." And we'll talk about just, Mars a whole. We'll talk, about, we'll talk about Mars a whole lot. Yeah, I don't know. I just, but I guess I, I did. Appreciate what he said about I think you said it in the context of being an activist. He said If you have the gift of telling a story hmm. Then you should tell that story yeah. like otherwise it's a waste You know if you have that gift of communication Then you should try to communicate. Yeah, I don't know. I like that. I, that like nice. that. I thought yeah. that was I thought that was nice
0: I kind of what I really admired is um His attitude towards the mask and its usage. Um I like what he said. He said, it really belongs to the world now, really. Uh, the mask is now property of the world. Um, and Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers, yeah. The irony. <laughs> Which he was, said you know, was a small a irony. A small <laughs> irony in the, in the <laughs> scheme of things. But yeah, I thought that was cool. But your point, your point is that... I thought that was, cool. Point, yeah, thought that was that very cool. Yeah. Um, that you make something, you put it out into the world, um, and it, this idea that it no longer belongs to you. Mm-hmm. You've made a gift for people. Um, and uh, that's true of all art, I suppose. Um, it belongs to the viewer or to the recipient. Yeah. They, it's however they interpret it, and yeah. sometimes that's a guy fox mask.
1: <laughs> it's true, and he and he said, I think he said, like you can't you can't stop people from using it, and all you can music. do is is <laughs> hope is hope that it'll be used properly. That's right. <laughs> and I, you know, wow. I think that's right, but I think I, I don't know. I think, to be honest, mm-hmm. I think I was probably hoping he would be a bit more indignant.
0: Me. Me too. Because you know, no, no, I man. would be.
1: I don't know. It just... Yeah. It just... Okay. Here's, th- here's one. Yeah. Nirvana. What
0: do okay? you mean? Okay. So, like, Kurt Cobain, he, he didn't want his stuff to be, like, uh, commercial pop culture commercial, right? And now, they're video games. They're, like... They're, you can play Nirvana on Rock Band and stuff like mm-hmm. that. That's... I find that ironic. Like, I, I, I've once walked through a grocery store, Billa Market, and I'm walking through the store and I hear a Jazz Lounge cover of Rape Me.
1: Goodness. <laughs> Talk about coming full circle in our conversation. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, am I actually hearing what I think I'm hearing? And it's this Jazz Lounge singer. She's like, Rape Me. You know? I was like, "Oh man, he made goodness this gra- thing. Goodness gracious! He made yeah. this thing. He never would have, never would have allowed that to happen. Like But that's what happens, you know. That's yeah, what but he
1: was on Geffen though, right? Like
0: he was. Yeah. So that was, I mean, that's. Yeah, that's I think true. it's. He did participate. He participated in
1: the "Smells Like Teen Spirit" music video.
0: That's right. You know I mean? So like, it,
1: <laughs> I think it's a. I mean, not. I think your point. Your point. Yeah. Your point stands, but it is. It is like
0: Basquiat on T-shirts. You know? Yeah. Like. Yeah, when you see the crown on T-shirts, I'm like, "What? What is that? Who owns that?" It's being sold at like Hot Topic or Yeah. No, Gap. it's true. It
1: just I think I don't know. I guess I guess I would like to think. I mean, I, I think his his attitude is very David Lloyd's attitude is very generous. Is very generous and and full hearted, mm-hmm. um, and I think probably logically also true, <laughs> yeah. right? Like if you create something, you have no more control over. It. He seems at ease with that. But also, he was saying that he he you know he did emphasize how much he you know the that he he's so that the way it's used is predominantly used by people who really get it, right? Yeah. And they want to. Um, how did he? Yeah, so, so he said something to the effect of like um, everyone's trying to use it to do good, right? That they're sort of trying to fight tyranny, and so I think he I think he very much has the sense that 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 is what the mask is used for, mm-hmm. and so the fact that then he when he came to the like fighting tyranny, let's just focus on that for a second, mm-hmm. right? And then it came to the 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 use by the by the yellow shirt protesters to try to oust a democratically elected (laughs) government, which is by definition not tyranny, right? I mean, is that that fair? Is that yeah? They view. I mean, they view. I don't know how you view it as tyranny. Like you have to define tyranny in a really weird way. But um, you have to get the person who wrote that uh, that prostitution law yeah. to define it. I guess if they if they wrote that, it yeah, really that would that'd be a really good be really good definition of tyranny. But I don't know. I guess there was just part of me that was hoping he'd be a bit more indignant. But maybe I don't know. Maybe he was maybe he was informed a little bit of the the uh, political climate he was entering into, and yeah. he he knew he was on on mike the (laughs) mic was hot so he was um he was gonna be he was gonna be wise and uh, didn't want to get carted off to a uh,
0: sly he's a sly fox (laughs) um
1: but we had a we had a we had a fantastic time interviewing david and want to thank him for giving so much of his time thank you to nicola for um for generously arranging that you can find links to david lloyd's work on our website poetinbangkok.com and please follow us on twitter and instagram and uh press that like button on facebook if you dig the podcast please consider giving us a five star review on itunes especially here post whale impact now that we're all just living large um it really helps us uh to reach new listeners for the show and if you really like what we're doing here and want to support us some more please go to patreon.com slash poet in bangkok and or follow the link from our website if you just give a couple of bucks per episode, uh, you'll be helping us pay our expenses and will give us a little a nice little signal that you want us to do a second season. Yeah. Um, and you can also, for a, a certain donation, get a Wicked Awesome t-shirt with Donald and Colin on Mars drawn by Kathy McLeod.
0: Thanks to everyone who's been listening to the podcast and has written us about it, supported us on Patreon, or said nice things about us online. Thanks to Anna and Pete, Nikola for their support, and to Isotope for the great sound editing software. And thanks to Martin Pavlinich and his band Reports for our opening theme music. And thanks to Duan Chong-Makan for additional music on today's podcast. And thanks again to everyone at Rock Academy and the Freeze Green Club. Tell your friends about us, whether they're into poetry or reading, music or illustration, or just quirky podcasts in this era of missions to Mars.
1: And whether you live in Bangkok or Saratoga, Tampa or Toronto, Auckland or Sydney, we hope you'll keep listening to what Donald and I get up here to on Poet in Bangkok. Alright you guys, we'll see you next time.